This is the big question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Joanna, Levi, Caleb, Sam, and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll begin with our serious questions. In this episode, we have questions from Joanna and from Levi. We'll start with Joanna. Her question is, what is Sheol? Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place where the dead go after they die. So you might think of Sheol in the Old Testament as the realm of the dead or the underworld. Now, like a lot of words that are used in the Bible, sometimes it's used in a very specific way, and sometimes it's used in a more general way. So sometimes when the word Sheol is used, it's referring to the literal realm of the dead, but other times it means something more like the grave. It's just referring to what happens when you die. Sheol is an interesting place because it seems like as the Old Testament progresses, we come to understand it a little bit better. So we begin to see coming into focus, let's say, two-part aspect to the realm of the dead. So we have Sheol on the one hand, and that's the place where what we might call the wicked dead go. And then separated from that is another place called paradise, and that's where the righteous dead go. And so when Jesus, in a parable, talks about the rich man and Lazarus and talks about what happens after they die, they go to Sheol, and yet they find themselves in these two separate places. Like One of them is in Sheol, the 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 bad place, the place that you don't want to go. That's where the rich man finds himself. But Lazarus finds himself in paradise, in the bosom of Abraham. Now, in the New Testament, Sheol is pretty much synonymous with what in Greek would be called Hades. So again, it's, it's the place you go after you die. If your faith is not in God, if your faith is not in Christ alone. And of course, if it is, we know in the New Testament, then to die in faith, your spirit leaves your body and goes to be in the presence of the Lord. Our next question comes from Levi. Levi asks, why did you become a pastor? Well, we've talked about this before on the big question. And the point that I want to reiterate is there really is only one reason why anyone should become a pastor, and that is because God is calling them to do that. In other words, the call from the Holy Spirit is the most important factor in someone becoming a pastor. Now, when we talk about this calling, there are two aspects of it. We talk about an internal calling and an external calling. So, Internally, I became convinced that the Holy Spirit was drawing me into pastoral ministry to seek 
ordination and to become a pastor. But just because I feel that internally doesn't mean that that's the right path. There needs to also be an external sense of calling as well. And so your gifts are tested by the church. You are examined by the other elders of the church in what we call the presbytery, which is where all the churches and our regents and their elders together. And if they agree that the Spirit is working and that God is calling a person into ministry, then we have both that internal calling and that external calling. And that person, in this case me, is ordained to become a pastor. There are a lot of other factors that motivated me. Obviously, I love doing it. I love preaching God's Word. I love answering questions like this. But ultimately, it comes down to the calling of the Holy Spirit. And that's always the most important thing. And now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Caleb. Caleb has a question about Jesus's divinity and humanity, and specifically how it applies in a certain story from John's gospel. Here's Caleb's question. Since Jesus was completely man and completely God, how did he know that Philip was under the fig tree? All right, so to begin with, there's just a couple of things we want to establish as foundation. So Caleb is referring to a story that you'll find in the very first chapter of John's Gospel, when Jesus is assembling his disciples, and one of those disciples is a guy named Philip. And we'll talk about Philip in just a moment. But first, let's talk about Jesus and the idea that Jesus is completely man and completely God, because this is really important. When we talk about who Jesus is, one of the fundamental, let's say, mysteries of Jesus's reality is that Jesus is fully human. He is entirely and fully human, but at the same time, he is entirely and fully divine. So Jesus is the God-man. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and yet He took on flesh and dwelled among us. He became one of us. But here's the thing. When Jesus became human, he didn't stop being God. He was always fully God, but then became also fully human as well. How does that work exactly? Well, that's a mystery. It's it's not easy for us to answer that question, but it is important always to remember that both of those things are true. So, Jesus is fully God and fully human, and in John chapter 1, he is assembling his disciples, and something interesting happens. Now, this is John chapter 1, starting in verse 43, and let me just read you from 43 to 51 so you can remember what's happening. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, 
How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So that's the passage in which Jesus calls two disciples, uh, Nathanael and Philip. So there's one little detail to tweak. It's Nathanael, not Philip, that Jesus sees under the fig tree. Philip goes and summons Nathanael, but Nathanael is the one who's under the fig tree. So the question is, uh, how did Jesus know that Nathanael was under the fig tree? And I think it would be good as well to talk about the significance of him being under that fig tree. So first of all, how did Jesus know? Well, Jesus is fully God and God is omniscient. There is nothing that is hidden from God. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, it says that no creature is hidden from his sight. That's true for God, and because Jesus is fully God, Jesus knows things the way God does. If you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you see that Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what would happen before it happens. So Jesus has this God-like knowledge and is able to see things that human beings cannot see. So there's something else in this story that's fascinating. Uh, Why? When Nathanael finds out that Jesus saw him under the fig tree, does he confess his faith in Jesus, that he is the Son of God and the King of Israel? Some people think it's because Jesus demonstrated his power. If he was able to see Nathanael without being physically present, like he saw him before they had encountered one another, then that seemed pretty miraculous, and that would be true. But there's a deeper significance to what Nathaniel is doing. We find him under the fig tree. Well, what people would do under the fig tree, they would go to the fig tree to pray. And Nathaniel seems to be a faithful believer who is praying for the coming of the Messiah who has been promised. Because Philip rushes over immediately to tell him, hey, look, we found the one that we've been waiting for, the one who was promised. So it seems as if Nathaniel was under this fig tree praying for the coming of the Messiah, and then Philip comes to him and says, here he is, here's the one. So when Jesus is saying, I saw you under the tree before you were summoned, he's essentially saying, I heard your prayer, and I'm here in answer to your prayer. And that's why Nathaniel reacts the way that he does, because Jesus in this moment is revealing the fact that he is God, that he is the Messiah who was promised. And so Jesus, being fully God as well as fully human, can fulfill all the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament. And this is why his disciples were so eager to follow him. They didn't fully understand what it all meant, just as we don't fully understand what it all meant. But they were overjoyed to encounter him because they've been waiting for him so long. And when we encounter him, we experience a similar kind of joy because he comes to us as one of us so he can understand everything about who we are and what we struggle with. 
but he comes to us as God himself so that he has the power to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to draw us into union with him. And now for our final segment, let's answer a couple of fun questions. This time we have questions from Sam and from Susanna. Sam has a question about hospitality at church. He wants to know, why do we now have orange juice but not hot chocolate? Well, the nice thing is that we have any hospitality at all. Because, of course, during the pandemic, we had to suspend that. But now we've resumed. So if you're an adult, you can get coffee before church. And if you're a young person, we have water and we have orange juice. But we don't have hot chocolate. And Sam wants to know why that is. Well, Sam, the reason we don't have hot chocolate right now is because it's summertime. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but summertime is really hot. So giving you hot chocolate on a hot summer morning just doesn't seem like a good idea. We're waiting until fall when the weather cools down and then we'll have hot chocolate available. So hot chocolate is coming. You just have to wait until the weather changes. And now Susanna has a question based on a recent sermon of mine. She wants to know, why can't we burn foxes like Samson? Well, I mentioned from the pulpit the story of Samson gathering the 300 foxes, which you find in Judges chapter 15, and tying their tails together with torches between them and going out and lighting on fire all of the fields of the Philistines. Now, when I mentioned this, I specifically instructed young people not to get inspired by this story to uh, go out and light fields on fire or to light foxes on fire either. And Susanna just wants to know why not. Well, there's a really simple answer to this, Susanna. You can't light foxes on fire because of the golden rule. In Matthew 7, 12, Jesus tells us to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You wouldn't like it if foxes started lighting you on fire. And so you shouldn't light foxes on fire either. In fact, if you go to Judges 15, I think you could make a case for Samson not lighting foxes on fire either, because it doesn't say that he lit the foxes on fire. It just says he tied their tails together with a torch in between, and it was the torch that he lit on fire. Now, I don't know how two foxes with their tails tied together could hold a torch and not get themselves at least a little bit singed. But even Samson doesn't seem to have been so uh, unthoughtful as to have lit the foxes on fire directly. So we can take encouragement from his example. If you happen to see a fox in your neighborhood, please don't light him on fire. Don't tie his tail to the tail of another fox. Instead, just give him a friendly wave, say hello, and go about your business. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.